those kind of fundamental relationships of, of big romantic relationships are always going to affect who you are going forward. And then ancestors, they are like literally your physicality and your genetics too, and, and the story and how you're embedded in that larger story of your life. And I, I love the idea of thinking about my ancestors' exes. <laughs> Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. The Right Question is supported in part by Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking today with Cree or Nihio poet Emily Riddle, author of The Big Melt a debut poetry collection rooted in Nihio thought and urban millennial life events. This collection examines what it means to repair kinship, contend with fraught history, and to go home and contemplate quote-unquote prairie Indian utopia in the era of late capitalism and climate change. Emily Riddle is Nihio and a member of the Alexander First Nation. A writer, editor, policy analyst, language learner, and visual artist, she lives in Edmonton, Alberta. Emily Riddle is a semi-dedicated Oilers fan and a dedicated Treaty 6 descendant who believes deeply in the brilliance of the prairies and their people. Emily, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be virtually in Montana. I'm so happy to have you here. I want to say first, congratulations. The Big Melt just recently won the High Plains Book Award for Poetry here in Montana. So congratulations. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been good to tour around over the last year. I just turned one year old a few weeks ago. This prize is awarded specifically to writers who are occupying or from this very unique landscape, right? These grasslands of the inland west, the high plains, or in your case, the prairies. How does it feel, Emily, to be recognized and celebrated, not only for the accomplishment of this collection of your writing, but also for its place on the land? Yeah, it was great to be recognized on both sides of the border. And, and the book is largely about moving home from the West Coast, which is a place in, in Canada and the U.S. that we think more of as like literary scenes. But there is so much happening on the prairies and in the Great Plains in terms of um, literature and community of, of writers. So it was great to be recognized on both sides of the border. You write in It Flows Here But... Quote, one of the ways my mom ensured we had a relationship to the land and the city was through creating art together. Emily, I'm wondering, is your writing practice or broadly your artistic practices, are they still the way you nurture your relationship to place? The book is definitely about place, about feeling a lack of belonging on the coast or what it means to feel belonging on someone else's territory and then what it means to uh, belong in an urban space that we've been purposely removed from to move to reservations. Um, and so place and, and being able to visit the land and and have relationships to the land is really important to me and my kind of ethics as an artist. Um, and everything kind of stems from that Plains Creek culture that we think about that comes from our history of creation story or our, our culture and kind of ethos in that sense. For those listeners who might not have a sense of this culture that you're coming from, the Cree culture, tell me a little bit about that culture, uh, where you're situated in Canada, um, and maybe give us, yeah, a grounding in that place. Yeah, I'm coming to you from Edmonton, Alberta. Um, and in, in Cree, we call this Amoskowatsiwaskaigan, and it's um, in Treaty 6 territory. 
and Plains Cree people. Our territories, uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, and Manitoba, and a bit of Montana as well. But the Cree people, more broadly, they are all the way from BC to Quebec. So we're the largest tribe in Canada. Um, there's over 100,000 of us. And then Plains Cree is kind of a subsect of that. Um, we're the kind of most numerous of that subsect. And um, our language is the most commonly spoken Indigenous language in Canada, too. We're a matriarchal people, though we're kind of recovering that. Um, we still have a lot of our ceremonies um, and ways of being because we are so numerous. It's not unusual to hear people speak Cree on the bus in Edmonton or in Saskatoon or other places like that. Um, and so we have maintained that kind of relationship um, to our territory and to each other through a border being put across territory, um, residential schools, the 60s scoop, all these sorts of things. There are four sections to this book. There's Big Melt, Big Prayer, Big Kinship, and Big Horizon. What's the significance to you or to your culture, to the book's themes and the structure that you've put your poems into here? Mm-hmm. It's so interesting writing a first poetry book where you have a whole bunch of poems and you have to figure out how to organize them. And for Cree people, we often do things in four, and it just ended up that way. So the big melt is kind of about meltdown of relationships, the romantic relationships. I wanted to make sure that there was prayer in the book. Um, kinship is a big thing that lots of Indigenous people talk about, kinship to the land, kinship to each other, kinship in romantic relationships, although not centering that. And then the big horizon is forward-looking, like what does that ideal future look like, while also acknowledging that time isn't always linear. You just briefly glossed over this idea of romantic relationships and kinship. Emily, I'm hoping you'll read a poem from The Big Melt. Will you read Broken Up? Definitely. Broken Up. Split ends with split ends. Open the cupboard and take out the no-name coconut oil. Pry the fridge door open to check how far gone the eggs are. You have changed from the type of person who throws out food on the exact expiry date to someone who inspects it, assumes it's probably okay if not green, runny, smelly. I am bisexual and I'm not sure I want to do this. Mix both in place and hair, trying not to get raw egg all over your face. Wrap hair in one of those plastic grocery bags you felt guilty for taking. You have so many tote bags in your front closet awaiting use. Sit down and turn on some mindless Netflix show. You miss the days of renting a movie and committing to the cause. Swipe left on every single polyamorous person on Vancouver Tinder. Some Nihioak have truly majestic hair, but majestic is a high bar for anyone now. So it's hard not to believe your damaged ends are some sort of moral failing. The egg is apparently reducing protein loss. There is debate on whether or not the coconut oil particles are small enough to permeate your hair. Regardless, this ritual feels productive. Go on dates with people who go home and Google Plains Cree. Rinse out this mask in the cold shower, trying to make sure your hair is not scrambled eggs and split ends, just split ends and split ends. In the case of hair, you cannot mend what is already broken. Chop off your dry ends and become a new person. I'm wondering, Emily, what interests you about hair as a subject in poetry, especially as it relates to the themes that you just talked about in these sections about kinship, about culture? Mm-hmm. Hair is so important to me. I was raised by a, a Native woman who's a hairdresser. And so hair factored in so much in my childhood of me sitting in the basement of a salon, holding foils, 
after school or, or witnessing my mom being able to transform people's feelings about themselves through their hair, which I think is so powerful. But also culturally, hair is really important to us. We keep our hair long for specific reasons. We know that that was a cultural interruption through residential schools or people being in foster care that their hair is often cut is a kind of cultural violence as well. And so my sister and I have always kept our hair really long, despite having this mom who can do really fabulous hairdos and, and dye her hair. Her hair is just like long and, and quite plain. My Yeah, my relationship to my hair has always been about relationship to myself and my culture and that kind of maintenance. And it is quite ritualistic to have long hair to care for. It can be quite monotonous and take a long time to do basic things. But um, yeah, hair is also like a, a spiritual connection for us too. So much of the early pages in the Big Melt sections speak explicitly to relationships. And I'm wondering, Emily, how you consider the type of poetry you're writing. Are you comfortable being labeled a confessional poet, even though you're centering a lyric speaker or the lyric I and your experiences explicitly are so broad, right? Colonialization, kinship, climate change. How do you think about the type of poetry you're writing? And again, is confessional the word for it? I don't mind being labeled as confessional. I know some people take it as an insult. There's so much dialogue about being called a confessional poet or being called a prose poet. And I would say I am both and I, I'm okay <laughs> with both those labels. Um, and I think there's so much power in thinking through like our romantic relationships that are also political or also a form of governance. And if we're thinking about kinship, which is such a large conversation for Native academics and artists, we can't leave out kinship as a romantic thing as well as those being like fundamental um, relationships to us, while also recognizing that they're not the only ones are familial relationships and friendship and other kinship. And just being a millennial Native woman dating um, provides you with lots of things to write about, <laughs> even living on your own territory, people being like so culturally unaware of where they are and the culture that is Indigenous to here. Um, I'm hoping you'll read another poem. Will you read Louise? Mm-hmm. I'm actually working on a, a novel project about her because she's such an interesting character in kind of Edmonton or Prairie history, but I'll read the poem first and then I can chat more about it. Louise, I have loved you since I first heard your name on a field trip to Fort Edmonton Park. These tours are so catered to white students, they assume no one in the audience is your relative, despite your wealth of descendants. Affluence equals the number of cousins you have. You knew this, I am sure, though you lived in one of the most impressive houses the city has ever seen. This is a footnote. It was reportedly the first house west of Winnipeg that contained glass windows. Within our kinship systems, you are really my grandmother since I am descended from your sister. A matrilineal reminder. No com no tan times two. Your ancestry.ca profile on my family tree says you were born in 1783 in the Beaver Hills and died in 1849 in the same place. How strange I have gotten to know you this way. There are no photos of you and I have not found any descriptions beyond that you had brown skin. You are the daughter of a nameless Cree woman and unknown father. Some people say your maiden name was Belly. Others say your name was Shining Star. You are the most famous for begging John Rowand, who became the chief factor of Fort Edmonton 13 years after you saved him following a horse accident. This is a story I loved as a child. You saved this white man, not the other way around. This is before we were unsure about saving white people. When they say you were wed in the laws of the country, they mean you were wed by Indigenous law. 
which means the white guy you married entered a web of kinship obligation, and you could leave if you wanted. You were not property. He married you even though you were a decade older and already had seven children. What power? Some people romanticize unions of the fur trade, but let no one erase your diplomacy. There is proof that your husband considered leaving you for a white woman. This is wholly common to this day, but he stayed with you until you passed. After this, he left your territory. He decided to leave the kinship web. This is a footnote. Later, white people would attempt to remove us from our kinship webs instead of entering them. This is partially why I know you through the internet. It was as if he knew he did not belong here without you. However, he died downstream in Fort Pitt of a heart attack on his way to Montreal. He didn't make it out of our territories alive. His bones were exhumed months after being buried due to a pre-mortem request to be buried in Montreal. He was known to be a large, hated man, and some say his fat was made into soap at Fort Pitt. Notably, one of the white men I dated moved to Europe years after we broke up. Before we dive into the nuances of the history that you're talking about here, mm -hmm. I'm curious, Emily, about the relationship between exes and ancestors, how you put those two things in relationship to each other. I think because we don't believe that time is sort of linear. And so in a way, our ancestors are always with us as our exes. So those kind of relationships even if you think about time in a more linear fashion, like those kind of fundamental relationships of, of big romantic relationships are always going to affect who you are going forward. And then ancestors, they are like literally your physicality and your genetics too, and, and the story and how you're embedded in that larger story of your life too. So, and I, I love the idea of thinking about my ancestors' exes <laughs> and diving into that, what that looks like. Absolutely. That seems ripe for a lot of investigation, right? You just said that Louise, this ancestor of yours, researching her life and her relationship to you is a project that you have continued beyond this poem. Tell me a little bit about that, about this novel project. I think it stems from a desire to want to know this Native woman who was so influential in Edmonton history or Hudson's Bay Company history and just like the complete lack of information about women, like it's mostly about their Scottish husbands or fur traders. Um, and so you have to go deep into either archives or family stories to understand that. And so a fictional project is kind of an attempt to fill in or, or make her a full person in the way that the archives don't allow her to be. And I wanted to think about what, what she would do if she lived in kind of, of modern Alberta, <laughs> how she would be disappointed in the lack of us living under that treaty agreement or speaking English, um, things like that too. And there are some records of her sending letters and syllabics. So the novel project I'm working on is about one of her descendants taking a Cree class and writing like a letter in syllabics. It's very poor grammar, <laughs> kind of beckoning her to come visit. And, and so she does. In this Louise poem, one of the footnotes is this is partially why I know you through the internet. Mm -hmm. Talk about that disconnection between having to go to the internet, having to go through literal documents and research in this way versus turning to this web of kinship. Talk about that and, and kind of the dissonance between those two types of understanding and, and learning methods. Yeah, I mean, because this is an ancestor from 1700s, which is quite far back, it's, she's no longer in our kind of family stories um, in that sense. And there's just such a preference for talking about men because we inherit their last names in the family tree about who they were. So 
I think for a lot of Indigenous people wanting to understand how far back those relations are is really important. Well, also, like when I read this poem, I think about like the liability of of saying that I'm researching folks in the archives and when people's relations only exist in the archives, too. In hindsight, with this poem, I kind of wish that I had had an additional footnote about that, that if you're only finding folks in 1783 um, and you haven't lived as an Indigenous person since then, then uh, I don't want you assuming this identity, too, is something that I think about when I read this poem now. You're listening to a conversation with Nihio poet Emily Riddle. I'm Lauren Korn. This episode of The Right Question is supported by Elk River Books in Livingston, Montana, offering new, used, and rare books and frequent author readings in their lineup of events programmed each season. A full events calendar and online shopping can be found at elkriverbooks.com. I want to tie all of these relationships to the book's larger conversation about colonization. Will you read How to Overthrow Canada via Infographic? Yes, definitely will. Prince Philip died and I wish I could celebrate, but my teachings don't allow me to find joy in the death of an old man. The Treaty 6 Confederacy sends condolences to the Queen on the passing of her husband, as one should do when your mother's husband dies. I eat a pint of ice cream with the acknowledgement that I will never live to be 99 due to factors beyond my control. The queen seems immortal while my Indian friend group faces tragedies. Despite experiencing an ongoing genocide, we have a healthier relationship to death. The queen sends my chief a pastel pantsuit that matches one of hers. He is supposed to receive a new outfit every three years as per our treaty. Inside the package, a letter reads, I'm sorry, I can't, don't hate me. And this one has a footnote is um, that real ones will understand this reference. <laughs> These last lines are in reference to Sex in the City, right? How one of Carrie Bradshaw's long-term boyfriends, Berger, breaks up with her on a post-it note. I'm sorry, I can't, don't hate me. Emily, I love the way that pop culture winds itself into history in your collection. And I'm wondering how pop culture influences your writing, how it influenced the writing of this text, how you thought about pop culture as you were writing. You you mentioned you're a millennial poet. And so I don't know if this is accurate, but I feel like that has something to do with you bringing pop culture into your poetry as well. So I'm wondering what it has to do with this very specific generation that we both occupy, actually, and this time period that we're in now. It's so funny with the last lines in this poem, I was reading to a creative writing class, and I think they were all in their early 20s, and they had tried to Google this and couldn't find it <laughs> where it was from, which made me feel older. The pop culture, yeah, I think it's just acknowledging like the network of thought in my head that we're not always living in a world of just political theory or just the archives, like all of those things are interacting with pop culture. And there's no way to separate those things in my head, whether it's sister wives or friends, Fanon, all impacted the way I think about my life and colonialism and, and where I live in relationships. So an acknowledgement of that. Um, and yeah, a kind of rejection, I think of like high and, and low culture too. You mentioned Franz Fanon and his philosophies multiple times in The Big Melt. So maybe for listeners, we can start with who this philosopher is, and then let's talk about his role in this collection. Yeah, Franz Fanon is a really important 
Martinican Black philosopher who writes about decolonization in Algeria. He has quite a few books reflecting on relationships to white women as a Black man, too. Really, his thesis is that violence is a cleansing force, and in order to do decolonization, violence is an important aspect of that. For me, having read him a lot in grad school and thinking through, like, our cultural value of peace is so important for us. Like, our first kind of duty of a warrior in our culture is peace. But also thinking about what do we conceptualize as violence, as systemic, as um, rather than just bodily, too. So I think that's really ripe. I wish I could hear trans in conversation with some <laughs> Korea elders, but um, he's since passed. So he really factors into like reflecting on romantic relationships and then also like the colonial project and how they're embedded in both. I think if I'm remembering correctly in <laughs> my own book, he's mentioned twice. So I have a poem about uh, reflecting on relationships with Native men and how one of those Native men in the poem talks to me about how he doesn't date Indigenous women because he doesn't want to hold us up. It's interesting because Franz on writing and being critical of being in a relationship with white women, he does end up marrying a white woman too. So it's a little bit of cheekiness. Um, hockey is a big thing here um, in Edmonton um, and the NHL. And I grew up watching the Oilers and thinking about how can I be an ethical person who consumes media, including NHL. And so thinking through like a, a peaceful refusal, such as sitting down during the Canadian ad- American anthem at the beginning of a hockey game. And so thinking through Franz Fanon and what he would do in, in that case. Let's talk about hockey. What does hockey have to do with the colonial project? Will you talk a little bit about hockey's role in that project? And if you want, we can read that poem. Um, that might be the a good, a good way into it. Um, hockey here is so big because I'm in Edmonton and because of this legacy of Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> there is such a specific energy when the Oilers are in the playoffs that everyone feels united. And I always wonder what if we were able to capture this for a means of rejecting capitalism or colonialism or like this world order. And also thinking about like this new arena we have in in Edmonton and how uh, houseless people are displaced. And a lot of these people are Black and Indigenous people on this continent too. So hockey is so rife for for commentary. You could do a whole hockey book. But the poem I have about um, hockey in, in this book is called Masqua Anders Revolution. What if instead of looking all humble during the settler national anthems, Ethan Bear sat on the ice with his legs crossed? I sat in the arena wishing for peaceful refusal thinking about how the syllabics on his jersey are alive, wondering what they think of this timeline. I sat purposely seated and stuffed popcorn into my face, and people look at me with confusion while O Canada is belted out. I read a lot of Marx in my early 20s, and I remember thinking I'd have to stop watching NHL if I was going to be a real Indian communist, but I didn't. Sometimes I wonder if maybe hockey is calling a proletariat revolution on the prairies. Perhaps the 2006 hockey riots in Edmonton served as a dress rehearsal for when the post-oil class war begins. Fanon says violence is a cleansing force, but a commitment to nonviolence is a core Nihio belief. I sit with both of these thoughts often. For Prairie Indians, the results of the 1885 resistance lays within us all, a wound that refused to heal, forever the ones who bit the hand who gave us moldy rations. We have this reputation now of being overly peaceful, of ignoring the efficacy of direct action. I think about the children from the Battleford Industrial School who were forced to watch as eight king were hanged for organizing against the queen. 
a warning not to resist the new world order. The crown has been organizing against us ever since, despite committing to becoming kin. Sitting in the back of a truck on the way through Battleford, I think about how Mr. Hay Masqua lived peaceful refusal, what he would have thought of the hockey and the bears who came after him. You write, the crown has been organizing against us ever since, despite committing to become kin. And in this poem and in a previous poem you read, you write about these treaties with the Canadian government that your peoples entered into. So tell our listeners what Treaty 6 means and and what these treaties are that we're talking about when we're talking about your collection. Mm -hmm. These treaties are um, agreements with the British crown. So the Prairie Provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba didn't become part of the Canadian Federation until 1905. So our treaties are actually have nothing to do with Canada, and Canada has illegally subsumed ownership over them. So we know that the British Crown was making these treaties with us, largely so the American government didn't claim the Prairie Provinces, and so they could solidify that border. But Canada has never tried to understand what those agreements were. I'm in Treaty 6 territory, which is an agreement made at Fort Carleton and Fort Pitt in Saskatchewan. And these were kinship agreements, and we agreed to allow settlers to come live here and to farm. The oral understanding of that treaty, which is different than the text, was that these people were going to become our relatives. They had a self-government that was one of their rights, freedom of religion. So I always say, like, when Black women and hijabs are attacked in Edmonton, that's an anti-treaty act and right to um, political and economic self-determination, they didn't actually get the right to, for example, drill below the depth of a plow. So my collection is a lot about resource extraction because of my proximity to the tar sands. Resource extraction has not ever been given permission from us either, which I also write in another poem in 1930, the Natural Resource Transfer Act is when Alberta or the Prairie Provinces subsume control over those resources rather than Canada and the Prairie Provinces too. So for us, that agreement was really about how do we live together well and how do we make sure everyone's provided for? And we know that for us, we've done a good job of passing on understandings of that great agreement and intergenerationally, despite having our children stolen from us in an ongoing manner. And for the settler side, that has not occurred. Like the understanding of what, what it looked like to live together in a good way has been kind of completely abandoned for resource extraction and wealth, but also just wealth of only a few people because we know child poverty in Alberta is the worst of any province in Canada too, despite being the most wealthy of resources. Is there a future where Canada acknowledges and abides by these treaties that are asking settlers to enter into these kinship relationships with the tribes. Is there a future in which those treaties are acknowledged in that way? Yeah, I think about this so much and whether or not it can exist under like the political project of Canada or Alberta too, or if we have to completely reimagine what that would look like if we're going to revisit that treaty agreement and update it because it's over 150 years old and there's lots of other things that have happened since. So I think reconciliation in a more serious form that isn't just tokenistic would mean to us giving large parts of our territory back to us, thinking through that treaty agreement, not just as something you say at the beginning of a meeting, but an actual economic and social means too, um, about resource extraction and how we share resources and all of our institutions (laughs) as well too, allowing Indigenous people to have this space and the funds to build our own institutions, like rebuild our own governance and our languages. And so 
that takes a lot of care and repair for us to be in a place too where we are not always in reactive mode too. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. I so enjoyed our conversation and I so adored your book. Thank you so much for having me. That was Mihio poet Emily Riddle, author of The Big Melt, out now from Nightwood Editions in Canada. Look for more information about Emily at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You've been listening to The Right Question. This episode was produced by Jake Birch and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Chris Moyles engineered this episode. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell, and our music was written and recorded by John Flordis. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.